Good morning. My name is Carol, and I normally do not get to be in this service. I'm usually in the Maple Street building. So thank you, 9 o'clock people, for allowing or welcoming, if that's not too, uh, <laughs> too much of a guess on your part, the rest of us in here at 9 o'clock. And I was thinking about when I grew up, there was a family who uh, was friends of my parents, and they had kids our age. And when they came over, especially if it was Christmas, my parents would have us put away our good stuff, our good toys. And that was a practical thing so they wouldn't get broken. And I noticed you left your good stuff out, and I wanted to thank you for that. (laughs) And we're going to respect it. Chris, when you read Revelation 1, I'm a picture person. And isn't that just beautiful? It's noun after noun after noun. And I was thinking, would it be easier for this man to draw it? I don't think so. But somehow he had to capture this vision given to him by an angel of God and put it to little words. And he did a great job. So today I have the pleasure of introducing you to the Jesus that John experienced. And I, and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I do. So let's find out who this Jesus is. Throughout this season of Advent, the last couple weeks, we focused on the foresight and the planning that God put into preparing us, our world and its people, for his son Jesus to come and into it, to step right into our world as a human baby. And there is a tenderness and there's a wonder and an awe to that part of the story. But it didn't end there. It's a moment in time that stopped business as usual forever. It's the point at which Jesus himself connected God's kingdom to our earth And things have never been the same. And you know that's true. Now, John, who wrote this, he is insistent about this. He's urgent and he's immediate in introducing us to the resurrected Christ. He he has now experienced the end of the story. And he's real eager for you and I to get to meet this glorified Christ. Not just the baby in the manger. Not just the guy who walked around as a human adult and fully God. But now the glorified Jesus. He wants us to know not only about Jesus, but he wants us to know Jesus himself, to be in relationship with us. He wants us to know that we can relax into his might and his power and his love, that we can trust him with our entire lives. He wants us to know that this Jesus is substantial enough to withhold anything that life can throw at us. So verse 4 is his greeting. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, and he makes reference to God the Father and to the Spirit, He says, grace to you and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come. That's God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And seven is a holy and perfect number, and it's talking about the spirit of God. But John lands on Jesus, and he stays there long enough to explain that to us. He continues, and he says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Second, the firstborn from the dead. Third, the ruler of the kings of the earth. First, John says that Jesus is the faithful witness. His language is really economical. Right off the bat, he gets two meanings for the price of one word. He calls Jesus the faithful witness. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. Well, well, why? The word that John uses for witness is a word that they used in the courtroom, and it means what you and I might expect it to mean. It means somebody who has firsthand information about something. He's credible because he was there. So Jesus is the only one who can give us first-hand information about God. He's the only one who can give us first-hand information about this life that God has to offer us. But by the time that John wrote this, at the end of the first century, this word that he used for witness had also come to mean something else. To the Christians who were reading this, 
were being persecuted. This word had taken on a second meaning, which is the same word. It's the same word that you and I use for martyr. That's the root of it. And it had meant it had come to mean someone who had given their life or who had lost their life because of their faith in Jesus. And some of these people were from these seven churches that John wrote to. And John wanted to acknowledge this suffering and this loss to the ones who remained. And he wanted to remind them, you know what? We get that, and Jesus knows that, but guess what? He's not asking you to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. Jesus, too, was martyred. He was killed for his faithful obedience to the Father. Whatever happened to these Christians was no more than what happened to their master. Second, John calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. Now that we know we can trust this Jesus, he goes on to describe him as firstborn of the dead. I have a firstborn son myself. Fortunately, he's not here. Unfortunately for Ben, he was not born into an ancient Jewish household. Because for Jesus, this title implies a few things. First, he's superior. He's preeminent. Being the firstborn carries the highest honor in a family. But firstborn is different than only. Firstborn kind of implies that you've got some brothers and sisters. That's God's family. That's you and I. And you and I, as members of God's family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we get to share in this unlimited inheritance, this wealth that is God's. Our Father has infinite resources. Now, I told you I was a picture person, but it's a good thing I didn't write this because my picture of this is really cheap. All I can think of is when you ride on Pirates of the Caribbean and you come along in your little boat, you come along the, the pirate chest and all that treasure that's spray-painted gold. And I know it's not that, and now I've ruined it for you too, but it's got to be a whole lot more than that. Anyhow, Jesus is firstborn from the dead. He is glorified. He has a new and a perfect body, one that cannot die. And he appeared to John in this ultimate form. He represents to you and I the final part, the ultimate part of our salvation. And that still lies ahead for us. But we can see Jesus and know about it. Finally, thirdly, John says that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is a very bold statement. If you can put yourself for a minute in the place of these first century Christians, these were Christians who were feeling the effects of persecution from their government. They were suffering, some were dying, because of their faith in Jesus. This Jesus who knew about their suffering, this Jesus who cared about them in their suffering, was the reason for their suffering. So, uh, under the, the emperor Domitian, who, who Domitian, I'm sorry, who was the, the Roman emperor at the time, these people might not have actually seen Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth. I wonder if they thought maybe God had gotten off track a little bit. Or I wonder if they thought maybe he wasn't the ruler of the earth in the physical sense, but maybe he was the ruler of the earth in the spiritual sense only. Maybe we got to power through this or muscle through the physical earth on our own, the day-by-day -day stuff, what, 70, 80 years, 100 years if we're lucky, and then when we get to the end of our life and die, maybe that's when Jesus is the ruler. But John says, no, 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 that's not what I mean at all. He says, just because some Roman emperor says that he's the father of the gods does not make it true. In fact, his supposed absolute power ended in his own assassination. And some of us might not even have heard his name before today. It's Jesus, not Domitian, who rules the earth and the kings of the earth. It's Jesus who remains. 
The Church of Jesus Christ has grown over these centuries. It hasn't diminished. It outlasts the Emperor Domitian. It outlasts Hitler. It outlasts Stalin. It outlasts Saddam Hussein. It outlasts any other kind of total leader who may be self-declared is someone who has power, who poses, who gestures to have power. And that's who Jesus is. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. We can trust him with our life. And so with the confidence that we have in who Jesus is, let's join in worship. Good morning. Don't you think we need to fight for times like this more often where we come together as a whole church and worship together? This is better than Christmas morning for me, I'll tell you. Uh, Okay, let's jump into this. Let's remember the context of what we're looking at. In Revelation, we're talking about an anti-Christian government. We're talking about Paul, I mean John, who is in prison because of his faith in Christ. Christians were in persecution. In the midst of all of this, that this book was written to encourage a group of people who are living day to day in the uncertainty of what life would bring them because of their faith in Christ. It's a book to encourage them, to remind them, maybe just maybe to give them hope why they live in a hopeless situation. Listen to these words. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. These verses share with us three specific things that Jesus has done. First, Jesus has set his love on us. Jesus has set his love on us. I was with a friend a couple days ago after Christmas in my hometown. We were having breakfast, and I was struck in our conversation how many times he used and I used the word love. I mean, we love our wives. We love God. We love our families. We love our cars. We love Eggs Benedict. We have this one word in our language that is supposed to capture our emotions and our feelings for so many things that are so different. So the very word that I use to describe how I feel about the living God is the same word that I use to explain how I feel about food. Now, that, that's confusing, and I think that should be confusing for us because I think in our culture where that's the word that's used, sometimes this idea of love can be, become a numb idea. And we can get so used to hearing something like that God has set his love on us and that God loves us. And that becomes so repetitive and mundane that maybe just maybe we forget exactly what that means. And we forget the depth. And how do we let that word and that idea that God loves us really hit us in the depths of who we are? How do we let that really affect how we come to understand the way God feels about us? Well, I'm not, I haven't gotten to Greek yet in seminary, but through some help with Pastor Greg and through some research, we can be sure of this, that when it says that, that God and has set his love on us, and it says in the scripture, to him who loves us, it's a very present word. It's not something that God loved us. I know we know those scriptures, those famous scriptures where God so loved the world. This verse is speaking of a God who loves us, who has loved us in the past, who loves us in our current moment, and that love will extend from this moment on to eternity. That kind of love is what Jesus has done. 
Jesus has come into our lives and into this world and loves us. Loves us in this moment, and this moment will extend for eternity. Beyond loving us, the second thing that Jesus has done, he has freed us, freed us from our sins by his blood. I also think that that this is a troubling concept for some of us in the West and especially in Southern California because I'm in a lot of conversations with people where, where this concept of freedom comes up. When we look at the state of the world and we look at even what's going on in Iraq and, and the mandate that we're carrying out to free somebody, all of us have grown up in a context where freedom is something that was given to us upon our very birth. None of us have known anything else but freedom. And with that freedom, this, this belief that I believe comes from God that every human deserves the opportunity to live in freedom. But when freedom's looked at as something that's entitled or something that we're born into or something that's just deserved, maybe it loses its meaning here when we understand what Jesus has done by freeing us. Because at our most basic human level, we are not free. At the very definition of being human, freedom is not part of that. We are bound to sin. We are bound to the tormenting and nagging feelings of inadequacy, shame, guilt, hate, frustration, and so much more. I can't tell you the number of students that I have sat with and who will say things to me like that they don't like what they see when they look in the mirror or that they don't feel smart enough because they're comparing themselves to a sibling or to somebody else in their classroom or that they're too skinny or that they're too fat or that they're too awkward or they're not athletic. And if they were just something, then they would be free from those nagging feelings. Each one of us live in some kind of, 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 we're bound to something. Maybe, maybe for you it's not those things. But you don't need to live in that kind of bondage. Jesus has freed us. Don't get it mixed up with the freedom of being an American. Get, let, that, let that sink into the fact that each one of us are bound to sin. We don't live in freedom, but because of Jesus, he comes and by his blood allows you and I to be free from those things that keep us down. To be free from those feelings that, 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 that nag at us, that torment us. That kind of freedom is part of this life with Christ. It's part of what Jesus has done. He has, he has freed us so that we can live a freed life. And finally, Jesus has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve the Father. Let's remember again who the original readers are here. These are people who are being mocked every day, who are waking up every day not knowing what life will bring them because of their faith in Christ. They are, they are, they are bound to, to a society that has them as second-class citizens, and I'm just so sure that for many of them, there was often a thought of, is this really worth it? That if I just threw in the towel and said, you know, this Christian thing, I'm done with it, it would bring a sense of a better life or that freedom that they weren't having. I'm just so sure that many of them thought that at times. And as far off as that situation is from our situation today, I know that there are many of us who go through life with the same feeling that it may just be easier to throw the whole thing away. 
Because maybe you're the only Christian in your whole job. Maybe you're the only Christian in your school, in a class. You feel like you're the only Christian in your, in your own family. And when you live a life like that, it becomes so hard at times that you just may think about throwing in the towel. I know that that's a very true feeling, this, this loneliness for Jenny and I. Because Jenny and I, we, we've grown up in amazing families. And who to this day will do anything for us. But when it comes to Christmas, it's just a little bit of a one-off for us. Because the way we live out our faith in Christ just looks very different from theirs at times. And so a couple of years ago, Jenny and I made this decision that on Christmas Eve, it was just so tiring to, to drive to our hometowns and to be wanting to be here. Wanting to be with our family. And so a few years ago, we said, we're going to stay here on Christmas Eve. If anybody wants to come to our house, we'll feed you but you got to pay um, <laughs> pastor's salary. Um, just kidding. And so for us, this concept of what Jesus has done by making us to be a kingdom of priests, giving us a new identity, putting us in a new family, has meant so much to Jenny and I. As we sit in this place, and especially up in the warehouse, and as we live life with people in this congregation, it reminds us that we are part of something different than we were born into. We are part of the family of God. We are part of the kingdom of priests. And as I sit in this congregation and live my life in this congregation, I love being with my fellow priests. Jesus not only has freed us, but he's given us a new identity, a new family to be a part of. And that part of that new family is doing things together, like coming together and singing and worshiping and giving. Part of that new way of living is being generous. Part of that new way of living is looking at the people who we live life with, who live next door to us, and think about how we can help them and how we can serve them. Part of this new way of living as a kingdom of priests requires that we live life so much differently because we live with one another. And our living with one another isn't the end goal. We come and live with one another so we can affect one another out there. And so all this is beautiful, but it's for nothing if the next time we do something for God or connect to God is when we're in this room in a week from now. But our time together with the saints and with the priests and the kingdom, we come together so we can go affect the world out there. Part of the way we live this thing out together causes us to do things like we're going to do in a moment. It causes us to have these these moments as a family, these rituals as a family that remind us of what Jesus has done. And this morning we're going to have that opportunity to share in communion together. And on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it. And after giving thanks for it, he said, This is my body, which is broken for you and for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and eat it. And after they ate the bread, they took this cup, and he said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. Take it and drink it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are reminded of what Christ has done by the breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood to allow us to live this life of freedom. So as our uh, servers and ushers come forward to the tables, I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to have this moment together as a family where we join in hundreds of years of people who followed God and followed Christ before us. And we take this moment to contemplate and to, to, uh, to, to participate in the Lord's Supper and communion. 
And the way it's going to work this morning, so here's your logistical, you're going to be dismissed by row to come to the table. You know, when we do communion up in high school, it's one of my most favorite times because we have a couple tables up front. And as students feel connected and ready, they will come forward. And I love sitting off to the side and being reminded that everyone in that room is the same. Each student, no matter what they look like, what age they are, they're all in need of the table. They're all in need of Christ's body and Christ's blood. And so this morning, let this be a beautiful thing for us as you are dismissed to come forward and grab the elements, take them back to your seat, and as you're ready, take them at your seat. If you're unable to come forward, we will have people coming in the hall, uh, down the aisles, and you just need to make a look or raise your hand, and we will get the elements to you. But this morning, pray, come forward, and receive what God and what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your son, Jesus. We are thankful for what he has done on the cross. We are thankful, God, that that he has set his love on us and that he has freed us from our sins and that he has given us this kingdom of priests to serve the Father. God, as we come and participate in communion, God, help us to experience you in a new way this morning, that we would be encouraged in our faith. And the same encouragement that John was trying to do would happen for us this morning. Thank you again for your sacrifice. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, It was about, I think I was in the seventh grade, and um, I was bargaining with my mom. I was negotiating, uh, trying to get her to let me go to this Valentine's Day dance. My mother was a conservative holiness woman, and she grew up in a conservative holiness uh, church, and, and she didn't, and I did as well, and she just didn't believe in us going to no school dances. So... We're sitting there, and I'm telling her about all my friends and how fun it's going to be and how much I really want to be there. And she just looks at me. I guess I'm kind of wearing her out with her reasoning, and I'm thinking I, I got her. And then she pulls out this card. She says, if Jesus was to come back, would you want to be caught at a dance? I said, Mama, I'm just trying to dance with the cute girl in my class. I'm not thinking about Jesus coming back right now. I lost that fight that night, and I didn't go to the dance, obviously. But I I just didn't get it. I I said, Mom, I'm just trying to have fun. I'm trying to dance. I'm not trying to think of Jesus' return. But what she was trying to get me to realize at a young age is she wanted me to walk in a consistent consciousness of the second coming of Jesus Christ. She wanted me to always be mindful that this Jesus that we talk about, that we sing about, that we preach about, that we come and we celebrate about, that this same Jesus is coming back again. And she wanted her little boy to be mindful and to be ready when Jesus came back. John, as he's talking, he's encouraging these seven churches, and he encourages them. And I love, he gets to verse 7, and he says this. In, in John, uh, in Revelation chapter, chapter 1, verse 7, he says this. He says, look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes, all the earth will mourn and well. Jesus, friends, is coming back. 
He wanted to encourage these churches who, who, who may have been experiencing persecution, going through hard times. He wanted to give them some perspective and help them to realize that the suffering of their present times cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed in and through Jesus Christ. He is coming back. This is not a done deal. The game isn't over. The plot will thicken. Our Savior, the same one that rose on a cloud and ascended up to glory, on, in, in like manner, he will come back down again and he will crack the sky. He is coming back and we will see him. John says, look, look beyond your circumstance. Look beyond your struggle. Look beyond your hardships. Look beyond your persecution. Look and recognize that this is not over. It will not end in defeat. He died and he rose again with all power in his hands. Jesus Christ is coming back again. So don't worry. These present times cannot be compared to the eternal glory that comes in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So get some perspective, John is saying. Hold on. He's coming back and we all will see him. Nobody will be asleep. Nobody will miss it. Nobody will be stuck in a corner. We all will see him. This, this comes with a great joy and with a great hope, but also a great caution. Because John encourages him. He says, even those who pierced him will see him. Even those who persecuted him will have to stand and give an account of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Every knee shall bow. I know we have Muslims. I know we have Buddhists. And in, in our time today, a lot of times in an effort to be politically correct, we don't really talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we don't talk about these moments. That, but the Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We shall see him. He is coming back again. Friends, the story is not complete. There is much more to be told. I remember growing up, there's an old, old Negro spiritual that I used to sing in, in my college choir. And it, it was called, In That Great Getting Up Morning, Fay Ye Well, Fay Ye Well. In That Great Getting Up Morning, Fay Ye Well. Fay, any of y'all know that song? All these white people, y'all know that song? Lord, have mercy. I like this. That's why I like Lake Avenue. This is the church right here. The, the, the song, for those of you that don't know, it talked about in the morning when Jesus cracks the sky. On that day when he comes back, in that great getting up morning, fare ye well. I'll be able to wave at the trials of this day and say, fare ye well. I'll be able to wave at cancer and say, fare ye well. I'll be able to wave at death and say, fare ye well. I'll be able to look at poverty and say, fare ye well. Fare ye well. Fare ye well. In that great getting up morning. Morning, bye bye. Because I'm going to a place that's beyond that that I know. I'm going to a place that's beyond the struggles of this world. So a bone, a, a bit of encouragement. If you're going through, if you're not sure what 2008 may bring, please know this: that the sufferings of this present world cannot be compared to the glory that comes in and through the power of Jesus Christ. It is not over. He will come back. He will come again. The question, my friends, the question, my friends, is the same question that my mama wanted her little boy to be able to answer. The question is, will you be ready when he comes? I love this song that 
that we sing sometimes, Jeremy, uh, in, in the singers, it, it talks about the coming of Jesus Christ. It says, behold, he comes riding on the cloud, shining like the sun at the trumpet's call. So lift your voice. Y'all miss your cue. I said, so lift your voice. I said, so lift your voice. It's the year of Jubilee, and out of Zion's hill, salvation comes. Let's put our hands together and sing this great song. On this last Sunday of 2007, we as your pastoral staff have been praying that we could help us all gather in this place and capture a fresh glimpse of who Jesus is. Um, Carol came to talk to us about who he is, this, this faithful, faithful witness who didn't allow his death to defeat him but became the firstborn from the dead and who has set his love on us. Jeff has come up and reminded us of this phrase, one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. Look at it there. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. Do you, do you like that phrase? He has freed us from our sins by his blood. And then I asked Pastor Albert to come up and in a low-keyed fashion. <laughs> low-keyed fashion. To remind us that the work isn't done yet. And that sometimes when we wonder, what is God doing? That he comes and tells us, I'm coming. I'm going to complete what I have started. Wait on me. Trust me. It is going to happen. Hallelujah. And now I have the opportunity to come up and try to make the main point that John makes here. That the Jesus that he wants us to see is not simply the Jesus that he'd first seen walking the, the roads of Galilee. Nor does he want us to simply think about the way Jesus will be. That our only hope is in the future. He wants us to see the Jesus who is here now. So that when you and I gather here in this place and cast our eyes upon Jesus... Who is the Jesus that we should see when we come and, and throughout the rest of the week? Our eyes have been upon our difficulties, our trials, whether they are financial, whether they are our own personal failures, whether they are with our marriages or our children or our parents, <laughs> that we come in and see who's really in control and who is worthy of trust. It's what worship is. That when our eyes seem to think other things are center stage, that you and I come into this place and we cast our eyes upon the Lord Jesus and see the one who really is in control and who can make a difference in our lives. And this is what happened to John there in exile on the Isle of Patmos. Do you have your Bibles? You must see this. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and, your, and companion in, in the suffering. All right. Verse 10. On the Lord's day, now even that's a great phrase, this emperor, whether it was Domitian or not, this emperor had said that because I'm the one in control, I want a day that's called the emperor's day. Christians wouldn't accept that. So they, they get, did give this day of the week, the first day of the week, a name. But it wasn't the emperor's day. The Lord's day. This is, this is boldness here. In, notice this phrase too. On the Lord's day. I was in the spirit. That phrase scares some of it, so I better move along quickly there. <laughs> Listen, do you believe a theological term, the imminency of God? That means God is present in this place. 
We come into this place and God is here. So here we are, singing, opening the word, in the spirit. And that's what John was experiencing at that time, in, in his own trial. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, verse 12. So I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw... Okay, you artists. Carol, pull out your pen and your pencils. Draw it. I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. With a golden sash around his chest. This is even better than the rose parade. It's amazing. But his head and hair were white like wool. We have some of that here. As white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire, and his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? I tell you, I tried to think about whether I've ever experienced anything like this. Um, I try to think about, and it's hard for me to, to even, a year from now I'm going to use California illustrations, but it's, it's hard for me to even tell you the kinds of things that I've experienced in my life. Back in 1992, I had a chance to go to a Chicago Bulls game. And Michael Jordan had been held almost scoreless in the first half. And in the second half, he hit 15 out of 18 field goals and 10 out of 11 free throws. It was, I was sitting right under the basket where he was scoring all of these points. It was unbelievable. If, if you like sports, it's one of those jaw-opening, eye-opening moments. You just say, wow. Now, many of you know that I love music, too. I sometimes get to go down to Orchestra Hall. Get to hear the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Now, I know we have great orchestras here, but sometimes when I would hear them play a Brandenburg concerto or be able to hear some of the great music, I would just say, that is so beautiful. I, I'm so amazed by it. What other thing? To go for the first time to the Grand Canyon and to look down. You just, you know what I'm getting at? Those kind of moments in our lives where we're almost speechless, we're breathless. I want you to take that moment that you can think about in your own life. Magnify it a thousand times. Magnify it a thousand times. And maybe you can see what John saw that day when he turned and looked and saw Jesus. What happened that day in his day of worship? The thing that I pray so often might happen here as we gather to worship on the Lord's day is when everything else in this world seems to be out of control. That we'll come and see sort of that veil that separates heaven's realities from our physical realities. will be pulled aside for just a moment and we will see who is really in control. And who is worthy of trust. And whom we can wait upon even in those moments when we don't know what's happening. That's what happened with John. That veil was pulled aside. And what he saw in terms of who was in control and worthy of trust was. Well, what did he see? He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus and he wanted his people who were going to be facing trouble in their coming year to cast their eyes upon Jesus. 
What he saw was the similar thing that other followers of the Lord had seen. Isaiah saw something like this in the temple in Isaiah 6. Daniel was alongside a river one day and had a vision like this in the midst of his own trial and persecution and exile. And John uses some of their language as he tries to describe what he saw. But what I want to simply say this morning to us as we gather here on the last Sunday of 2007 is that this is not the Jesus simply of the past, nor simply the Jesus who will come in the future. This is the Jesus who will be with us in this coming year. And this is the Jesus who is here in this worship center this morning. And I would like us all to take those moments that we need to take and where things are happening that we say, I don't think that I can continue on, that we will say, He is in control. He is greater than any military power, any governmental power, and any kind of challenge, physical, emotional, relational, or otherwise, that we will face in this coming year. The prayer that we have had on this morning, as we gather in this place, that we can turn our eyes upon Jesus. And be people who are at peace. Now, last point. Do you have your Bible in front of you? I want you to see where this powerful Jesus was. Look at verse 13. And among... I don't know what version you have. Among the... Oh, anybody reading that? It must be dark up. Lampstands. What on earth are the lampstands? Well, look down at the last verse in the chapter. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, this is one of the most difficult things to understand, but one of the most beautiful I've ever seen. That God is everywhere present, and when you leave this place, He is still going to be there available and ready to help. But among His church, as we gather in His name, there is somehow this special presence of this powerful and majestic Lord Jesus. I want to say in this coming year, one of the most important things that you will be able to do is come into this particular lampstand where the fire of the Spirit is present, where the light of Christ is central, and cast your eyes upon Him again. Because when we capture a fresh glimpse of Jesus, no matter what we are facing, we will hear him say to us, as he said to John, verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead, but then he placed his right hand on me. And he said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For I am the living one. Yes, I was dead. You saw that, John. But behold, I am alive forever and ever. And whatever you are facing, I hold the keys. I even hold the keys to death and Hades. So my word to you this year is, cast your eyes upon him. Place your trust in him. And hear him say to you, don't be afraid. For I am with you, and I will not leave you. I will never forsake you. Live to his glory. Amen. We're going to have an opportunity to uh, sing together, aren't we, Jeremy? Do we have a, a song we're going to do? Let me get our cue sheet out here. We had so many things. Oh, yes.
a song written by a close friend of mine, uh, really for a morning just like this one, gathering our voices together with all the nations, uh, singing praise to the Lord Jesus Christ, a hymn for the nations. Oh, you're already up there. Let us all stand. Some of us have heard this before. It's an easy song to sing. As you listen, you can join your voice together, remembering this Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of our lives. <laughs> 